We were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Lord, we pray that you would restore us for each one of us in this room and our community besides us. We need that more than anything else, Lord. Please be gracious in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're moving through a series called Caring for One Another. But I don't really get what the point is. What a waste of time. Because as we all know, when we decide to follow Jesus, life is a beach. Everything is on the up and up. Things just get easier. Nobody ever gets laid off. Sorrow and sadness doesn't come our way. Health concerns were a concern of the past, and our children always make very good choices. Am I right? No. So maybe a series called Caring for One Another, The Biblical Way, might be quite important for us to think about right now. The big question that we need to ask is, as life presses in on us, because we live in a world that has not reached its final destination yet, how do we cope in those moments of emotional turmoil when things get a little bit too much of us? And cope you will, either well or badly. Because the reality is, is that no, none of us face this life without hardship and disappointment and struggle. We still get laid off. We, we still twist our ankles. We still lose friends. We still hurt the ones we love. Betrayal still happens. Emotional instability seems to be absolutely everywhere. It seems that although I wish that I were done with tears, I'm not done with tears. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Of course you do. The human experience is one of emotional whiplash as we respond to the stuff that comes at us. And that's one of the things we've been considering as we've been going through this series called Caring for One Another. How do we Knowing the love of God in Jesus Christ, how do we walk well with one another as we face those things that leave us feeling like we've been in a car accident? How do we speak truth? How do we bring love and grace? What difference does it make to us if we know Jesus the way we face hard things? Now, I'm not assuming that everybody in the room knows Jesus, but I tell you what, today's going to be a really good day to meet him. It really is. Because he is the one who changes the story in the midst of hardship and hard things. The Christian life isn't some mushy middle, and I need to say that to some of you who are believers. This idea that, well, I've come to know Jesus, and I know some truth, which basically means I'm going to be on this narrow bandwidth of emotional experience through life. Not according to my Bible. According to my Bible, the Christian life is, well, it's grief and it's glory. It's weakness and it's wonder. It's about a cross and a crown. Have we got enough emotional bandwidth for that today, people? We're going to be finding how we deal with laughter and with tears. 
Now, I don't know whether you know this, but the scientists tell us that we are the only animals, and I'm loath to call us animals most of the time, yeah, but you get the, get the idea, we're the only animals that shed tears for emotional reasons. And I know you're about to say hyenas, but that's just not an emotional reason. We're the only animal that laughs for emotional reasons. Now, the scientists can't explain to us why, but the scientist Voltaire, he made this observation. He said this, that tears are the silent language of grief, the universal language to express hard moments. Do you see that? The Lord has wired into us something that helps us to express both, both, both delight and sorrow physiologically. And each one of you in this room, we all know those experiences and those moments when it's just too difficult to put words on it. But a laughter says it all. Or the weeping communicates what others around you need to know. Now this bit of the Bible doesn't tell us why we cry, why we laugh, but we're going to find out how we do it and more importantly how we do it together. How we become a community of people increasingly who know how to walk well with one another through hardship. For those of us who have been walking through the book, we're up to about chapter six and it's entitled, Talk About Suffering or Hard Things. There's a little quote at the start of it, it says this, talk about suffering, hardships and suffering are everywhere and scripture counters this by speaking our troubles on nearly every page. Do you get that? The Bible was there before us. The living God knows who we are as people and what our needs are. And he's, if we will be willing, he's going to shape the way in which we deal together as a community with hardships and hard things. And the place where we're choosing to start for that today is Psalm 126. Have it in front of you. Because I tell you, this is a psalm, and it's written from a low point, people. But it doesn't sound like that to start off with. If you look down at verse 1, you can see it there. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, or closer in the original, and some of you have got an ESV or a more modern NIV, it says this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. I don't know whether any of you lot have got a fortune. Anybody ever had a fortune to restore? Anybody that minted? Will you never have to, ever have to count a bean again? They're in a low point, but they're remembering a point when something monumental, it's one of those kind of things where, you, you know, it's one of those kind of events that you dine out on for ages. It's those kind of, one of those things that sort of lights up your face when you talk about it. We had one of those moments, I think it was last week, where Becky was talking about when we last won the Champions League and she went out, makeup on, fancy clothes, with a mate, down into town. Who else went down there? And the celebrations that were going on, they were clearing up that mess for a week. And you should have seen her face, her face as she remembered that great moment, that experience of joy and singing by everybody except the blues. It was brilliant. That sort of made it all that more sweet. And she, just her face lit up when we restored the fortunes of Liverpool. We were like men who dreamed. There was laughter filling our mouth and songs of joy bursting out of us. They did great things, the mighty... Yeah, you get the idea. You get the idea. 
But here was an instance in the life of the nation of Israel. And we don't actually know what it is. And it's really difficult to pin it down. Some people have said it was the return from captivity. You'll remember that the Babylonian Empire came over and literally decimated and crushed and left a nation in shame and in chains. Parents were grieving, thinking, what does this mean for my kids? Kids couldn't even find their parents. They were dragged off to a foreign land with no welfare. They were left in the dust and in the wilderness. And they were crying out, going, how long, O Lord? Why has this happened to us? And in a moment, after 70 years of grief and sorrow, in a moment, their fortunes suddenly changed. In a moment... No power by them, not them mobilizing themselves through some quick planning, not because they'd read 10 points to improve my life in Cosmo magazine, not because they'd been watching the right YouTuber, the right blogger. No, suddenly, the muscles of the Almighty were moved and a political decree was made so that Cyrus would let the people go back. And nearly 50,000 of them, 43,000 of them, trekked back across the desert and there was never a more smiley bunch of desert wanderers than them. They've been given money by the king to go and re-establish the nation, the children of Israel together. And as they walked along the dusty path, they were, they were like people who dream, I can't believe this is happening. No way! We did nothing. We didn't deserve anything. And yet this new future and potential for us has been visited down upon us. Even the nations are looking on as we walk past their villages on our way with our shoulders back saying, this is awesome. The people are looking on and going, the Lord's done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them. And so they were like men who dreamed. It doesn't get any better than this. Laughter filled their mouths, the singing, the joking, the, the considering of the possibilities. Have you been there when somebody restored your fortunes? Oh, it was looking bleak. And it was looking dead, and it was looking like there was no hope, and something came flying in out of nowhere, and whoa! And already some of you are thinking, aren't you? Already some of you are thinking about when that struck, when that bombshell landed on planet Earth 2,000 years ago. That bombshell by the name of Jesus Christ who surprised everybody who in the days of his flesh, as he walked down the streets, and people who were crushed in all manner of ways to be crushed or oppressed or worthless or shamed, they had their lives put back together. You remember the disciples when he was in the boat and they were about to go down with the wreck and they're expecting to die. And with a word he says, peace be still, and all that is calamitous and chaotic about life in that moment was calmed and they looked at each other and who is this? Only moments later, a poor lady who'd been trapped with this terrible disease that had been assailing her, and she had cried, and she had cried. She'd spent her money on doctors. She saw no potential. And that morning, she expected so very little, but she thought, I'll just try nonetheless. I'll go to Jesus. And she goes to Jesus, and she sneaks in like a special forces agent, trying to get somewhere near without exposing herself to public shame before the crowd. And in that moment, she reaches out and touches him, and her fortunes are restored. And she tries to sneak away quietly. And will he allow her to go quietly? Not on your Nelly. Because not just her, but everybody around her needs to be able to say, the Lord has done good things. The Lord has done great things. Not only that, Jairus, this dad with a broken heart because his daughter is dying. There is the presence of one who comes in and to be around him is to have your fortune and your situation totally restored just because he's there. Because he is the Lord. 
And there is a sick daughter, and they've got no answers, and she is, and in fact, she is dead. And they said, don't even bother going near. What fortune restoring could be done here? And Jesus goes in, and he says, do not doubt, just believe. And in the presence of the fortune restorer, life is brought back, and tears of joy come down the parent's face as Jesus hands the daughter back to them. It was as if we were dreaming. We were men who dreamt. The Lord has done great things for us. Or else there's the fellow we know as Legion who had been assailed by evil forces all his life. He'd been chained and he broke the chains. But the chain that was crushing the inner person was still there until Jesus came. Get out of him. Was his fortune restored? And so many of you are thinking about that, aren't you? And you're thinking about when Jesus Christ is near, he is the restorer of fortunes. Who are you today if you're a Christian? Oh, there's many ways in which you might dare to try to answer that question, but it will almost always be on the basis of something about you. Wrong! According to this psalm, if you have met Jesus Christ, the thing that is written the loudest and the longest over your life and mine right now is that you are a restored person. Your sin has been put behind you. You have been drawn into the family on the basis of the merit of Jesus, not because you're any good. You have been granted a seat at the table. You have been declared a child of God. You have the Spirit of God at work in you. Many of you remember, don't you, before you became a Christian, You were trapped in your sin and your guilt. Perhaps you were really angry or addicted. Perhaps your emotions were all at sea. You were stuck and you were trapped and you were dark. And then a day came when you saw the light and his name is Jesus. You checked it out in the Bible and you followed through the stories and you dared to ask the question, could this be true? Could Jesus be the restorer of fortunes? Could he be the one who renews and remakes people as he always claims that he has been? And as Christians all over the world say he will be doing until he comes again. Is he the restorer of of, of fortunes? And if so, could he be the restorer of my fortunes? And a day came when you dared to reach out in faith and say, Jesus, if you are who you say you are and can do what you say you can do, would you be the restorer of my fortune? Would you take my sin? Would you allow your sin-crushing death to apply to my life? Would you let resurrection power come into me so that whatever I may dress or wherever I may go or whatever I may face, the thing that defines me more than anything else is everything you've done. You're restoring power and grace. And some of you can remember how in that moment you were like men who dreamt, weren't you? It's happened to me. He died for me. He took my sin away. He restored my fortune so that my fortune isn't dictated by how I feel or my ability to achieve or wrestle life to the ground. I am caught up with Jesus and his future is going to be my future. I was like men who dreamt. Our mouths were full of laughter. Our mouths were full of song. And even people who didn't know the Lord looked on and said, Flipping the Lord's done good things in that life, hasn't he? And they are remembering this. Because right now, things are pressing in on them that make those things go quiet. 
as I said to you, they're writing and singing this psalm not from a place where it's easy for them to draw down on all those memories. Have you been there before? Have you had those moments and those times where you know there is a truth and a reality about what God has done for you in the past, but it's really difficult to tap into it? You try. Maybe you pull out your favorite Bible verse. Maybe you stick on your playlist with your favorite songs. And you th- I know that this is stirred and filled and lifted my heart, but today the only thing I seem to feel and live under is tears and pressure. I know that I'm somebody who has had my fortune restored, but right now it doesn't feel like it. No, so what are we going to be? We're going to be the people who try, together as a community, to sing verses 1, 2, and 3 together. Is that clear? We're going to have to be people who say that and encourage one another in that. Why? Because we have this strange thing when hard things happen to us. We have this strange relationship with stuff that has happened in the past. For some of you, and perhaps you know who you are, your tendency is when hard things are happening, you just want to, you just forget the past. You push it away. Perhaps what you do is you lose sight and forget what God has done for you, which is a bit daft, really. It's a bit silly. Maybe you become like one of those kids who are at the, uh, the fun fair. Maybe you've, in fact, maybe you've taken your children to the fun fair and something like this has happened. You've paid for the ticket, you've taken them in, you've made sure they were fully dressed before they got there, you've taken them on the sideshows, you've given them extra money for ice cream, you've paid for all the rides they could possibly want, everything is going absolutely swimmingly well until it gets to two-thirds of the way down the ice cream and little Billy, he gets bumped and his ice cream falls on the floor. How does little Billy respond? My ice cream! There's something childish about that because all the other things that you've done for little Billy fade into the background. All the things that have been done for them in the past, all the prices that have been paid, gone in that moment. All that little Billy can do is see the immediate problem. Now, nobody in this room would be like that when trouble or hardship hits, would they? No. We're not like little Billy at all, are we? And that's why we have to be a community that sings of what God has done. Because so often when hardship presses in, we forget the past. Oh, but there's other ways in which when hardship presses in, we tend to respond. Some people may try to forget the past. Others just somehow try to live in it excessively. Sometimes we're facing so much hardship, we just want to escape, we just want to stop the pain. So what we do in our heads and our hearts is we just dwell on when it was better. And it becomes a sort of fake resting place and comfort for us. And you think back to happier times rather than do anything in the present and it becomes sort of crushing and and debilitating and you become stuck. If you get so caught up in what happened in the past and not let what God is doing for you now, you will, uh, fo- uh, not let us focus in on what God is doing for us now and how the past salvation is working out now, then you will get stuck. Will you allow God 
and the realities of all that he's done to mobilize you even in the midst of hardship. I think that's what this psalm is encouraging us to do. Eugene Peterson, he's a famous author, and he he wrote this. He says this. None of us have it within us to be joyful except momentarily. It is a vitality and an exuberance that us sinners can't maintain for very long at all. Do you get what I'm talking about there? So the team wins the Champions League, but the feelings fade. You get the new job, and it makes a momentary difference, but it doesn't penetrate your life to the point of hope. So what does this psalm encourage us to do in this first place? To focus in, to sing the celebrations of what the Lord has done, and let that reshape the way that we focus and think in the present. But that isn't where the psalm ends. There is a turn that happens, and it happens in verse 4. Now, I've spoken for a bit, so could somebody read for us verse 4, 5, and 6? Just a little bit louder for us, Emma. brilliant so do you see the point of of anguish at this moment could do you mind just helping her if if little and won't settle take her out i know lovely so now we get a bit of a, a look into what is actually happening for these people in the moment restore our fortunes O lord like streams in the negev what's that prayer do it again lord We don't quite know what has happened here to them. We don't know quite where they're languishing. But one thing that they do realize is that although they've experienced good things in the past, it means that many things haven't been put right. They aren't, the the streets aren't paved with gold. There is still misery. People and health still break down. There are economic downturns. I think of the place where we go on holiday. It's called Camposol in the south of Spain. And it is marketed to the recently retired or the soon-to-retired as living the dream because there's going to be sunshine most of the time. There's a beach not too far away. There's cafes that aren't ridiculously expensive. Come, set up your garden. Come and enjoy and make a, make, uh, make a home and make a living here. So people invest tens of thousands of pounds to go and live the dream. And what Jane and I have noticed, having been going over there for a long time now, is that the dream very quickly evaporates. Because the reality is over there is that even though the sun doesn't seem to stop shining, all the problems that I take with me when I go over there tend to stay with me. There are still financial concerns. There are still health concerns. You can still twist your ankle. You still have to balance your budget. And you still have to deal with the fact that life is difficult and there is distancing from, in relationships and people can still be nasty. And this is what they are painfully and personally aware of here. Their dreams cannot be fulfilled in a dry place. And there can be an experience of something of the future breaking into the now, but we're still not in the future quite yet. So this life will be full of tears. Now you have to ask yourself, what do your tears say? 
in those moments when you are weeping and when you are sorrowful, what are they saying? Well, here's a few things they might be saying. It's not supposed to be this way. That's why I'm weeping. This isn't the end of the story. That might be what it's saying. Things are still broken and I don't feel safe. I wish it were different. Those are the things that are getting said in the midst of our tears. So I spoke with a dear lady recently in her early 90s. Her name is Flo. And she's going through an experience that although she has walked as a Christian for a long time, I just want... Tiggs, I can't concentrate. Sorry. There's a sofa just outside. There we go. So poor Flo, who's in her early 90s and wishes that she could still do all the things that she used to be able to do, can't. And she's in a tearful and a sorrowful place. Her body is beginning to give way, so she has health problems all the time. Her mind isn't as quick as it used to be. And the bit that hurts her the most is that she's walked with Jesus for a long, long time. But now she can't remember the words. She used to know how to pray. She said, I used to love offering prayer to the Lord, but now I try to pray and I can't even think of what to say. I used to know where to turn in my Bible, but it's disappeared from me. My health problems are making it really difficult for me to gather with people and talk about the things of the Lord. I'm beginning to feel at, at sea. I said, what's, really, what's that really like for you? She says, I fear that I'm falling away from the Lord. I said, wow, that must be so hurtful and painful to you. What have you found that's helped? Well, I watched some Christian TV. I think it was called T TBN or something. And it seems to me they talk an awful lot as if there shouldn't be any troubles and pains in the Christian life. And I scratched my head and I thought, you know, that's making me feel worse. Is there something wrong with me? I fear and worry that I'm going to fall. I'm worried that I'm going to be sowing these tears for a long time. And I bring this example to you and say, is that what Flo should expect? Should, should, should she just pull herself up by her bootstraps and get more mobilized and energized? Is that what her problem is? Come on, I know you're in your 90s, love, but make an effort, will you? Or is this the reality that we have a continual sense of knowing we're not there yet? There are two illustrations or two pictures of that in these verses. You can see the first one in verse 4 there. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, of course, we all know what the Negev is. No, you don't. It's a desert. But it had a very strange topographical set of features, which meant that very rarely was there much water flowing through it. But every now and again, there would be a sudden flash flood. So you can imagine the land is parched and dry and cracked, and there are gullies, and there are sort of... Uh, withering plants and they're gasping for just a little bit of water and then suddenly by no reason other than it just came the heavens would open the waters would flow and there would be a plushness of life that would come rushing through all the little gullies would be filled with water all the little dying grass would suddenly stand up there would be a freshness in the scent in the negev there would be a moment of refreshment a restoring 
And it seems that what the people to do, uh, are singing together is saying, Lord, would you do that again? Please, in this moment, could you bring something sudden that can only be ascribed to you to restore, Lord, please? Please, would you do that, Lord? And that's right that we gather together in times of pain and hardship, and we pray that through together. We say, Lord, would you do something that can only be described as being like what you have done before? Please, would you help with that, Lord? But there's a second illustration here, which is a little bit more long-term. Rather than it being a sudden intervention, this is a long, slow wait. And as we've talked about before, believers, so often we have a wait problem. We really, really struggle with the reality that so much of the Christian life is waiting in times of sorrow. How long will I have to wait? Well, I don't know how long you will specifically have to wait, but I can tell you this, it won't be longer than a lifetime. If that fills you with any measure of comfort. How long do we have to wait with tears in our eyes when sorrowful things come? I do not know, but it won't be more than a lifetime. Because the Lord has promised us that there is a day where we will be bringing in the sheaves. But let's get there. Look, waiting in sorrow. You can see that there in verse, uh, verse 4 and 5. Uh, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. That's what we can expect. So here's the wait problem. And when you and I are having to wait quite often with pain and difficulty around us, what tends to happen is we know that there is a promise of restoration in the future, but the reality is lacking that. So what do we try to do with those two things? We try to bring the promise and the reality closer together. We try to fill the gap with something. And we'll take matters into our own hands because it is hard to wait. And we've got verses here that tell us the expectation that it is hard to wait in sorrow. But don't try to fill the gap yourself because if you're trying to push the Lord to do something that he's not ready to do or is not going to do at the moment, then all you're going to get is frustrated. But if a point comes where this is the moment where the Lord is going to do something, then there is nothing in the world you can do to stop him. But in the midst of this sorrow as we are facing it, wait Wait, sowing even with tears. What does that mean and what does that look like? Well, the problem is, is that sowing in tears is really quite hard. Uh, it's demanding. It's difficult. So you can imagine the person going out and they're tearful because the land and the prospects of the future isn't what they want it to be. And so they're carrying out this bag of seed. And with them, they're like, why am I even bothering? What is the point? There's not enough water to bring about a harvest in the end. So I'm so upset and so worried about what my future will be, the tears are coming down my eyes as I I decide to start sowing. Now, I don't know whether any of you have sowed any plants recently in your garden, but it's not an easy and a straightforward thing to do. You have to go and find the tools from the tool shed, and you go and get the tools from the tool shed, and invariably one of them is missing because you've lent it to somebody from church and they've not returned it. And so you have to go and source that, and so you take your tools out to the place where you're going to be sewing. And when you get there, you realise you've forgotten one of the important tools, so you have to go back, and then you come back, and you're like, right, I'm ready to go. No, I forgot my drink. I'll go back for my drink. I come back to the... Start digging and poking around in the soil. And then you say, oh, forgot the seed. So you walk back and you get your seed and you start to think about like, oh dear, but I've got to organize this. And the ground is so tough and so I'm breaking my back and I'm beginning to sweat and I start doing the 
uh, the, the little trench things that I need to be able to put my seed in so something will grow and it takes absolutely ages and it's backbreaking and I didn't take enough ibuprofen before I came and it gets halfway through the day and the water is gone and I just don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just getting worn out and I'm not even halfway through it but I'm going to battle on anyway because it's really hard but it's got to be done so I keep on sowing and I'm moving through and it gets towards the end of the day and I realise I should have put my sunblock on because I've got sunburn and I've got orthopaedic problems and I've still managed to lose one of my tools even though I don't know where it had gone and I stand back and I look at my handiwork and what do I see? Just dirt. Anybody been there? Sowing your tears and it seems like such a long way to go until anything good will happen. And in those moments, in church, we come alongside and we say, how are you doing? And the first 10 times you're asked, you tell the truth. And then after a while, because you know it's not the response that other people want to hear, you just go a bit quieter and you get slightly more isolated. Because sowing in tears as you wait is very difficult indeed. Some of you have been through a season of waiting recently. You're feeling tired and you're exhausted. Some of you have been sowing in Speak Kids or Rooted or Welcome Club or Junior Church for years. You've been sowing and sowing and you've prayed and there have been tears. Some of you at work have been trying so hard to honour the Lord. And strangely your boss has never run up to you and said, because you honour Jesus so much in this workplace, we're going to give you a pay rise. I've never heard of that happening. Sometimes you've been sowing in a marriage that you never thought would be this difficult, and it's so hard, and it breaks your heart, because when marriage is hard, everything is hard, and you're waiting. Some of you are moving on in years, or have got health problems that mean you cannot do the things that you used to be able to do so easily, and it's just not fun. And you wonder when things will turn themselves around. And you've been sowing in tears, and you're wondering when that day of joy will come. Well, can I tell you, the upside is coming. The upside is coming because Jesus has promised it. Maybe you could think of Matthew 13, and so often what we find is the harvests are a picture of the new heavens and the new earth coming. When a field that currently seems to have weeds and a bit of growth and both seem to dwell together, a day is coming when everything that is hard and everything that drags you down and everything that breaks your heart and everything inside of you that is rotten as well will all be done away with. But we're not quite there yet. This is what this world is like. It is one that is full of weeds and it is difficult and full of toil. Yet, just wait. Just wait. We will be people who look at one another in the midst of the hardship and say, just wait. We will sing this psalm together because there is a, it shall, there will. There is a declaration of certainty that was bought and paid for by Jesus Christ at the cross, demonstrated to us in the first fruits of the resurrection, and it's just waiting to occur. So what does this tell us and what does this mean for us? It means that if you reject Jesus, this world is the closest you will ever get to heaven. I hope you're not satisfied with that. 
But if you embrace the promises of Jesus, this world is the closest you will ever get to hell because of what Jesus has done for us. So we want to be the kind of people who are singing that at one another, particularly at times when we don't quite know how it is we intend to get through. How are we going to make it? We know that it is going to be hard, but that's why the Lord has given us these kind of psalms, so that we can look at one another and sing together as we walk along the way. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to praise and thank you for the power and authority of Jesus Christ. So often it can feel as if our circumstances are dictating the future. But we praise you that he is the one who holds and owns and controls the future. Lord, we think of the people in this psalm who would be singing this. And they're at a low point. They remembered what you'd done in the past and filled their hearts with thankfulness but cried out that you might do more again and sustain them whilst they wait for that great harvest that is to come. Lord, we thank you today that though we're not much as people, if we know Christ, we are those whose fortunes have been restored and just wait because they will be even more in the future. We praise and thank you for this. We praise you that we will get to feast in the house of Zion. We will get to celebrate all that is good and right. Have mercy on us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.